Moving to Live is a podcast about movement and exercise. We bring you interviews with professionals in the movement and exercise field. The goal is to provide information for other professionals and also amateur movement aficionados, people who understand that movement is part of what makes life complete. Some of the people we interview you will have heard of. They're well known in and outside of the movement and exercise profession. Others you may not have heard of, but they have a great deal of knowledge to share. Many people doing the best work spend their time working with people, not working on their social media presence. We're going to give you a chance to learn from some of these talented and knowledgeable individuals, and we're going to learn along with you. Moving to Live podcasts are going to be short. Each interview will be long enough to impart usable information, but short enough to be able to be consumed in a single bout, during your workout, commute, or even during dinner prep. We all like long-form interviews, but time is valuable. Moving to Live wants to give you the option to learn and be entertained without needing to commit 60 minutes at a time for an interview. Give Moving to Live a listen. Check out our sister podcast, FitLab PGH, which highlights people, businesses, events, and activities in the Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania area that make movement a priority. Moving to Live would love to hear from you. Want to connect with us or have an idea for somebody you think we ought to interview? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com, or connect with us on Instagram and Twitter, both underscore mov2liv. We're excited to bring you these interviews, and we think you'll enjoy each and every one that we bring you. Moving to Live is back with another episode. I'm excited about today's guest. Today's guest is a specialist in athletic monitoring. I think he's got a very interesting story about how he got there. I'm sure he'll have some interesting news to tell us since he is just finishing up with the NCAA championships for wrestling where his team came in second. We are fortunate enough today to have Don Moxley. Don's current position is sports scientist for Ohio State, excuse me, the Ohio State University <laughs> men's wrestling team. Don, I want to thank you for talking to Moving to Live and being willing to share your knowledge and expertise with us. It is absolutely my pleasure. Thank you. I think one of the things that or reasons that I started moving to live is because I realized that, uh, as Dean Somerset says, information is in silos, or there's a medical profession who says there are medical islands where people specialize in their one thing. And the opportunity to interview people of different areas of expertise really holds true. I'm fortunate enough to be a tester in a pilot study of a biofeedback device at the University of UP, uh, University of Pittsburgh and UPMC with Dr. Dave Rabin. And when I talked to Dr. Rabin, he said, oh, if you've got a podcast and you talk about physiology and movement, you need to talk to Don Moxley. So that's how I found Don. So it really is a small world. It is. And we, and we live, and we live about two hours from each other. And with, without that, we probably never cross paths, which is crazy. So as I said a few minutes ago, you are currently the sports scientist for Ohio State University Wrestling. I think one of the most interesting things about anybody who's involved in the field to me and for anybody who has curiosity is how they got to that point. So the initial question, because Moving to Live is a podcast for movement aficionados and movement and exercise professionals, is were you a mover or were you active as a youngster? Or how did you get started in this journey? Well, yeah, I was a mover. I grew up on a farm in eastern Ohio. We grew up in the middle of the strip pits over the, in what's called Belmont County, over by between Cambridge and St. Clairsville. 
and um, was a high school wrestler, a decent high school wrestler, uh, but and and went to Ohio State, enrolled at Ohio State with every intention of going home and raising beef cattle for the rest of my life. Uh, but as I walked on the wrestling team, I had a I struggled uh, dramatically with injuries. My I basically practiced about forty five days my first two years. Knew I wanted to do better than that, and it 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 put me on a pathway of asking questions of what's it take to get better, what's it take to do, you know, to solve this problem. And and this is back when you know Ohio State had hired its first strength coach about uh, three years before that. Um, he did most of his work with football. Uh, Steve Bliss, he's a former president of the NSCA, um, and. So the resources were rather limited, and I wound up crossing paths with a professor in our exercise science program, a guy by the name of Dr. Robert Bartels. Um, and the cool thing about Dr. Bartels was he was a protege of a researcher by the name of Dr. Ed Fox. And Dr. Fox was the first American physiologist to describe the, the physiology of energy systems. Uh, you know, what we've all come to understand is, is the classic oxidative glycolytic phosphorylytic. Uh, and so Dr. Bartels was his protege. Um, I wound up taking a class and Dr. Bartels was also a swimming coach and a swimmer and an athlete and really instilled, uh, the love of physiology in, in that time. And, and, and then about the same time I had a, 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 a teammate who lived with a, a track, uh, shot putter. Uh, Kevin Aikens at the time had the second longest shot in the world. And um, Kevin's we're at their apartment one night and Kevin said to me, he says, you want to get strong? He says, I'll show you where to get strong. And um, the next day he takes me and I walk into Lou Simmons's garage. Um, so this is before West Side was West Side. Um, and it was like freaking going. It was like going from Kansas to Oz. It was crazy. And um, so you have this confluence of science and application at at such an elite level, and I was I was lucky to 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 have that um, from a movement standpoint. One of the th I think one of the things that's helped me is again I grew up expecting to be raise beef cattle, and so I spent a lot of time in 4-H and FFA showing and judging cattle. And movement is a critical element in judging uh, livestock uh, performance. Um, and now my older brother who also wrestled at Ohio state, he's a doctor of veterinary medicine. He and I are constantly having conversations about watching people move. And we go back and use that background we had of, of in cattle judging and raising production beef cattle. Um, I think it's given me a little bit of a, a unique insight into working with athletes. It's kind of interesting that you mentioned the confluence with animals. I remember giving a very brief nutrition talk in a weight training class when I was at Auburn University. And after class, a animal science major who was specializing in poultry science comes running up to me and wants to talk about nutrition for poultry. Mm -hmm. And to me, it was really interesting. I mean, obviously, chickens and humans are different, but it was really interesting how he was able to, as a sophomore or junior, take the information from humans and say, Hey, I wonder how this applies to what I'm going to do. Well, and, and I, I, this happens all the time. I, and I, I remember as a, as a college junior sitting in animal science, 661 class, which is non-ruminant nutrition. Um, so ruminants are cows. They have four stomachs. They have, they're called pre-gastric digesters. And then there's ruminant, there's non-ruminants, which are pigs. They're, they're like us. 
and I'm, I distinctly remember sitting in that class in 1983, making nutritional decisions for myself as an athlete, um, because there was not sports nutrition back then. Um, and, uh, so move, you know, migrating between the, you know, between the animal model and the human model is not the worst thing in the world. There, there's, you can learn a lot there. I want to take a step back because you described you were a high school wrestler and then walked on. If you watch any high level sports, I'm thinking uh, a few months back we had uh, Division One football championships, and you heard the various experts talking about how X number of players played multiple sports in high school. And as somebody who also grew up on a farm, I know even if you were only a wrestler, you got multiple movement opportunities in different ways on a farm and everywhere from uh, pushing cattle around to spending time shoving hay bales around. But were you a multiple sport athlete in high school or was it just wrestling? I was not. It was just wrestling. And, you know, we, we, again, the farm that we grew up on was, was not necessarily a very profitable farm. You know, my mom, my dad worked in the coal mines. My mom was a registered nurse and, um, and it, what was interesting was, so in the sun, in the sp listen, spring and summer, I was on the idiot end of a hay baler. Um, we, I mean, you know, there's, you know, we talk about strength and conditioning. There's nothing that prepares an athlete like 10,000 bales a day. Um, that, that'll move the needle if you want, if you want some hardcore conditioning. And, and so I didn't have the luxury of doing multiple sports and, you know, we, you know, in the, in the wintertime, everything's frozen up and including the water in our house. We had this old farmhouse. So there was, a, there was many times that if I wasn't wrestling and showering after practice, I didn't get a hot shower that day. So, so wrestling served us at a couple different levels, uh, not just from a physical development, but just maintaining quality of life at a certain level. And you also mentioned that you were a frequently injured wrestler for lack of a better term, your first two years. What do you think that was the reason for that was? Do you think you were inadequately prepared to wrestle at that level or bad genetics combination of factors? No, it went back to one thing that back then we thought I thought cutting weight was the secret to being great, a great wrestler. So my freshman year, I cut from about 220 down to 177. Um, and back then, you know, strength and conditioning was not a core element in the athlete preparation uh, portfolio. It was relatively new on the scene. Um, so I was not lifting. I was cutting weight. We were con conditioning. We were wrestling a lot, but, um, I was not physically, I was not resilient enough to do the work at a high level and, 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 and respond. So, uh, there was two years where I was cutting way too much weight. Um, and when I finally stopped cutting weight and made the decision to go heavyweight which came with a decision to start strength training. Um, and again, this is strength training being influenced by, by Lou Simmons. Um, you know, it was about packing on pounds. Um, for those, and, for those people who are listening, who maybe aren't up to date in the strength and conditioning world, can you just briefly describe the Lou Simmons program? Because it's not what you commonly see if you go to your local health club or your high school gym. No, Louis Simmons uh, has an has an outfit here in Columbus. It's called Westside Barbell, and at any given point in time, you when you walk into his facility, there will be eight of the ten strongest people on the face of the earth training in there. Um, 
And it's not, I mean, and, and, and you see things there that you, that you, that just blows your mind. You know, back then I was, I, I walked in the first time and here's a group of athletes that are cycling through doing doubles with a thousand pounds on their back. And I was, and I was just like, are you kidding me? Um, and so, you know, we, if, if you're listening to this podcast, you're probably a physiologist ascent level. If you want to generate force, you've got to have muscle size to generate force. And, and there's no one who drives that more than this whole West side concept. Um, so, uh, it was about just absolute strength back then. And, uh, that, you know, you, you do that by getting big and throwing weight on your back. What was it do you think that made you decide to explore? How do I prevent getting injured? How do I train to be a better wrestler as opposed to what many a- other athletes may do saying, well, you know, I'm going to become a physical therapist or an athletic trainer and figure out how to treat these injuries. You're kind of ahead of the game and saying, I don't want to get injured. So what do I need to do? But many people don't think that they think, well, I want to treat injuries. You know, I don't, I'm not sure where that comes from to tell you the truth, uh, Ben, but, um, you know, maybe that comes back from the agricultural background. You got to change the inputs if you want to modify the output. You know, I had a professor that says, if you're not managing what goes in the front end of the cow, all you're doing is taking care of what comes out the back. Um, and, and you've got to pay attention to, to the inputs. Um, and you know, that again, I was just asking the question, what do I have to do to stop getting hurt so I can wrestle? Um, and you know, once I solved that, I had a, I had a lot of success. Um, so I guess it was just, uh, luckily I heard from the right people that got me going the right direction back then. It's like you said, the lucky, lucky confluence of many factors put you in the right place at the right time. Yeah, you've, uh, you know, my, my, I give my parents credit for this is that I've got a pretty big radar dish. If there's something going on and I can learn from it, I take it in. I try not to get caught up in dogmas. Um, I try to be open-minded. Um, and I'm and and, 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 and then as a scientist, you know, as I, as I flipped over, you know, going from animal science to, to exercise physiology, all it is is specializing in one species. Um, so as, but it's still all science and, and you, you make that flip and, um, and been able to do that for the rest of my life. And, you know, what is the underlying physiological response we're looking for? What's driving it and, uh, how do you manage it? And I think that's something interesting too. Many people, when they are fairly successful in their athletic career, and if I'm reading your bio, right, you were fortunate enough to be a big 10 heavyweight wrestling champion. So you were a little bit more than fairly successful. At what point did you realize, you know what? My wrestling career is done. I'm not going to go to the Olympics. I'm not going to go to the world championships. I'm not going to be somebody who's going to excel at this five, 10 years after I graduate from college. Well, that that's, that's what, that's interesting. That's a great question because, um, so I wrestled nationals my senior year. This is 1985. And I was the only guy from Ohio state to qualify that year. So I win a big 10 title. I fly out to nationals. I, I have, I have a couple good matches. I have one bad match puts me out of the tournament. We fly home. I empty out my bag from my wrestling gear. I fill it with spring break gear and I get on another airplane and I fly down to Fort Lauderdale. Um, I fly back about 10 days later and sober up. And I sat down and I said to myself, so what are you going to do now? 
Um, and at the time I had, uh, I was three years away from Olympic trials. So this is 1985. We don't have trials until 88. I have at the time, the most successful wrestler in the history of United States wrestling. Um, Bruce Baumgartner is the, is the current heavyweight freestyle champion. And I, and I also had a full ride academic scholarship to grad school and, and we had sat around the wrestling room a lot of times and, and, you know, right. Wrestling rooms, you have these old guys come in and, you know, want to teach and want to work. They want to stay connected. And we always called them wrestling junkies. Um, the guys who just couldn't get away from the sport, they were junkies. And I said, I don't want to be a junkie. And, um, so I actually, I took all my gear, I took everything that related to wrestling except for two items. And I went out and I threw it in the dumpster and I didn't step on a wrestling mat for 10 years after that. Um, I made a clean break and at the time, so I'd had two more knee surgeries. You know, I'd had five knee surgeries by the time I'd graduated. I wasn't running for conditioning. I was riding bicycles for conditioning. And so I just poured myself into cycling. Um, started riding my bike, got to where I could ride my bike 300 miles a week, um, became a United States cycling federation official and a USCF coach and just lived in that cycling world for, and, um, and just stepped away. And, and, um, that was an, that, that was a really interesting decision because now that I'm back involved with the sport, I'm running into all my old teammates that are all having knee replacement surgery and hip replacement surgery. And I'm doing pretty darn good. You know, back then, if you were going to say who's going to have the first knee replacement surgery, I'm at the top of the list. But um, the fact that I walked away from the sport and I and 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 spend as much time in a bike saddle as I do, I really think it's given me some great longevity personally. And uh, that, it goes back to that decision I made in 1985 at uh, at, at 50 West 10th Avenue in my apartment, just sitting there one day and saying, okay, you know, wh wh which way are we going with your life? And, and I, I threw all my wrestling stuff away and I made a change. I think the summary of that is you had real realistic expectations as somebody who grew up in New upstate New York and was somewhat of a wrestling fan. I remember the heavyweight wrestler you're talking about and he was pretty much recognized as one of the best of all time at that time, if I'm thinking. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's yeah, that was easy. That was an easy one for me there. And as somebody who is a cyclist, and I think that's uh, very interesting because if you wrestled as a heavyweight wrestler, you would be what would be termed as a quite large, uh, cyclist, even, <laughs> even if you reduced your muscle mass. Yeah. I look funny on a bike, but I can make it go fast. Um, so as, as long as it doesn't go uphill. Hey, if it's going downhill and there's a nice run out, you can't touch me. <laughs> I have a, uh, a good friend, Paul Swift, who is a former track cyclist. And Paul was renowned when he was at Auburn for going five or 10 miles out of his way to avoid the hills. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, <laughs> but, I, I, I know that feeling. But the downhills are the flats you wanted to be with him. Yeah, absolutely. So the realistic expectation, the recognition that, okay, unless all the stars aligned, I'm not going to be an Olympian. The recognition, though, to also stay active with cycling, do you think that was just because for so long you'd had a regimented uh, exercise routine and even though you were no longer wrestling, you recognized at some level that, hey, I really enjoy being active and being fit? 
Well, yeah. And, you know, I was going to grad school to study exercise physiology. That was the, you know, that's the lifestyle we were living at, the, you know, that we, that we choose as, you know, in this area, you know, we recognize the personal benefit that comes from it, you know, and, you know, competing and preparing for at a very elite level may not be the healthiest thing in the world. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm not a huge supporter of running marathons. I don't, I think they're, I think they take something out of you. Um, I don't think they make you a better human, but, um, but yeah, you know, movement, you know, I think we recognize the value of it. We may not have been able to describe it as we can today with, you know, understanding the role of, you know, BDNF and all the other, you know, sub factors that come with movement. Um, but we recognized that it happened and we kept it in our lifestyle. And I think it's interesting. You've recognized, you mentioned the generation that you were from. You're a couple years older than me, but I know from going to American College of Sports Medicine when I was a graduate student, typically you go to there and you see a lot of people running or you see a lot of people walking around with cycling event t-shirts, as opposed to if you go to various other fitness or movement conferences, they may have a bench press conference conference on <laughs> and i could say something but i won't if you if you look at the different professions it's it's pretty funny about how what the different levels are but i think you've hit a nail that if you're majoring in exercise physiology there's something most people who are doing that at the graduate level are doing some sort of movement there's not very many people get i think getting their masters are going you know i really don't like to move no no i think it's i think it's part of what we recognize and we want to understand it and and promote it more and Ohio State is a pretty large school. It's a very prestigious school. It's a doctoral level school. So how did you avoid the pull in of academia where they said, well, you're getting your master's, you should go on and you should get your PhD? That, you know, that was, that was easy because, um, first of all, again, when you're, when you're an undergraduate 80 through 85, one of the things I learned about 1985 is that I am, I am relatively profoundly dyslexic. Um, so I didn't take English 110 until my last semester, my senior year. And the only reason I took it is because I had to take it to graduate. Um, so I took it at night and I dated the instructor to make sure I could get through. Um, but, you know, it, so writing for me – Writing for me was a chore back then, because, so I didn't have a, I didn't have a personal computer. Writing was done with erasable typing paper and and longhand writing. And then in 1986, my younger brother came to Ohio State to play football, and they tested him, and found out he was dyslexic too. And all of a sudden, I I got this device that was called an Apple IIc, um, and this thing had spell check. And I was like, holy moly, does this change my life? Um, so, you know, I finished up grad school, undergraduate, and and I, I, I wanted out of the academic space at that time. I, I wanted to get – I just wanted to get out. I'd kind of pushed it as far as I could at the time. And then, and then what's happened, Ben, is technology's kind of caught up to me and given me the ability to do things – um, that I was not able to do back then. And, and I'll tell you, there's been a lot of times I've sat back and said, you know, should I go back to grad school? Should I get the PhD? Um, you know, I, I was, I got to teach at a big community college in Columbus, Columbus state community college. They have an exercise science program. And I got to teach there starting back in the early nineties. Um, 
and I love, I really loved being in the classroom. I really loved that experience. And so the, cl- the community college gives a non PhD, uh, academic, the ability to teach. And I was helping them write coursework and doing things like that. But, um, that, that, that whole PhD thing has been floating out there for a long time. I've just not been able to put together the the situation that I want to go ahead and, and close the door on that. You know, if, if I had a PhD, I wouldn't have had the eight year experience that I had working for polar, um, which was, which was probably as valuable as anything I did in my life. You know, I got to, I got to work for them and, worked for the leading brand in wearable technology early on and learned at an applied level, which was just incredibly valuable. So the decision not to go over after the PhD and stay on the academic track has given me the ability to really explore some things. Um, and maybe this is just justification on my part. I don't know, but, um, it, it's certainly given me the ability to learn things that I would have not been able to do if I was in a tenured academic position. One of the things I always tell people when they say I may go back to school is my dad went to law school when he was 74. Yeah. So, so it's never too late. But I think you hit on something for people who maybe aren't your age and my age, uh, 50 or a little bit older. Working for Polar would have been a big deal because I remember I think I had my first Polar heart rate monitor in 1989 or 1990. Mm-hmm. And it was just amazing what it would do. And at that time, Polar was it. It's kind of like if you didn't have access to an EKG machine and you wanted to measure heart rate, a Polar heart rate monitor was what you got. Right. And that's and and when you work for them, I had access. You know, I've got a bo- I've got a box here in my credenza, all, but I've got twenty heart rate monitors in not and not just Polars. I've got a ton. Of, you know, I'm I'm a tech junkie, and I you know I go back to my experience, you know, the, the, the dyslexia may made it difficult to communicate in written form. It gives me a really good ability to think abstractly. Um, so when it comes to the application of some of these things and some of these ideas, I think I have a distinct advantage over, you know, what someone would consider competition. Um, it, that's, that's my skill set. So it's, it's the, yeah, that experience applying that has been just crazy valuable to me. We're talking with Don Moxley. He's a sports scientist for Ohio State Wrestling. I think Don's given an excellent explanation to as to why he did not pursue a PhD. I know that if you're a master's student at a large university, oftentimes if you decide that you're not going to go on, you're looked down upon or said, well, you're never going to do as well as if you get the PhD. And I think he's a perfect example of, well, you can do as well. And if you're interested in learning, you could still learn. How did you, or what was the path that you took? You finished your master's and said, okay, I'm done with this uh, this official schooling for a while, even though I think you and I would agree that you're constantly learning whether or not it's in an official classroom. How did you move on and what did you do after that? Was it immediately to Polar? No, I, I spent a few years here in Columbus. I, I worked for a sports medicine practice. Um, I was their director of educational outreach. So I was I was teaching, but we were working with coaches, preparing them, you know, uh, preparing coaches. The state of Ohio has a, a certification, sports medicine certification program. And uh, so I was running that for several years. And I was coordinating the research that a lot of these physicians were doing in this particular practice. Um, so it was a, it was a pseudo academic setting. Um, and then, and then I had the opportunity to move to the community college 
at the same time. So I was teaching at Columbus state and working in the sports medicine practice. And, um, at Columbus state, we put in an exercise science lab that, uh, we were teaching kids to be personal trainers. And, um, one of my key elements was, I felt that the difference between Joe Bag of Donuts personal trainer that had, you know, a lifetime subscription to muscle and fitness and knew his way around the gym and a professional was the professional's ability to demonstrate return on investment to their client. That if the client says, I want fill in the blank, X, Y, Z, a professional exercise scientists should be able to put together a process that says you lost body fat, you gain strength. You know, I don't care what the variable variable is. Um, I want to run a sub four hour marathon. I want to rub a sub two hour half. Um, that's when this, and, and so that's the difference between being a personal trainer and an exercise scientist. Um, science requires hypothesis design an, uh, an experiment, collect the data, analyze the data, reform the hypothesis. That's what exercise scientists do. And, and, and a, at a great level, at a high level, that's what the best ones do. Um, if you're a technician and whether you're a personal trainer that knows his way around the fitness facility or whether you're a strength coach that knows how to teach cleans, that's a technical, that's a technical training set. The scientist is able to measure the output of the process, interpret the results, go back to the coach or the individual, make adjustments and change the experiment and run it again. Um, so, so this is what we taught. So we put in a lab at Columbus state, we put in this fitness assessment tool that was, that was called a, 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 a tri-fit. It was made by a company out in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And they had skin fold calipers that went to a computer and a scale and a sit and reach. And they had a cardiovascular test that attached to it. So I wanted my students. The reason we did it is because I needed, I needed people to come to my lab to get assessments so I could get my students experience. So I needed a great report. So I bought this device because the report was awesome. Um, and if someone came in, they'd walk away with the report and it became a marketing tool for my lab. Um, so we put this in and, and again, it was a computer and I connected to it really well. Well, Polar, uh, a few years in bought that company. Um, and at the time I had been helping them do, do customer support and help people learn how to use their tool. And Polar came and they came to me and said, listen, we want to hire you to, to sell our product. And I, I made the decision to, to make the move from academics and go to the dark side to sales and, and, um, and was, had a lot of success there, but you know, again, it was crack for me. I mean, all of a sudden I've got all this technology at my fingertips and it was crazy. Um, so it was just a really valuable, valuable, you know, none, none of the one of those confluences that, you know, the boy, this looks pretty cool. Let's not be fearful. Let's make the jump and see what happens. I think it's interesting. You and I have used similar terminology with my students. I tell them that uh, the goal is to become a practitioner, not a technician. And I define a technician as somebody who can follow directions or follow a protocol. And a practitioner can follow the protocol, but A, they understand why they're doing the protocol, and B, they can modify the protocol. I think you've taken it a step further and said they need to be able to report on why things are happening. So I'll probably add that into my toolbox. That, yeah, it's well, and I think, uh, you know, Mike Boyle does a nice job. He calls it cooks and chefs. 
Um, you know, if you want to, if you want to apply heat to hamburger and, um, and, and sell it, well, you can go work at McDonald's. You can be a cook. There's a very distinct pro, pro you know, protocol that you follow. Um, but if you want to be a chef, you, you take a step back and you, and you find out what resources are available. You, you figure out what your output wants to be and you creatively bring together a process because you understand, you understand the programming. Um, so if, and, and, uh, you know, do you want to be a, at a high level? You're a chef, you have your own restaurant, you're doing these things. You know, if you study with that person, you can be a sous chef, you can learn, but if you just want to be a cook, if you're just going to be a technician, then, then, you know, go get your certified personal trainer, or your CSCS, and you'll be a technician, but there's going to be a boatload of competition for that job. And I want to touch on that in the second half of the interview. I want to kind of finish up with this first half with, you went from academia to the dark side with polar. And that's especially appropriate since Polar was based in Finland and part of the year they're mostly dark. Where did you progress from there and just kind of in a roundabout way get back to where you are today at Ohio State? Well, I was working for Polar and, and again, had a lot of success, got to go to Finland. I freaking went to Finland on December the 21st one time. And they're in northern Finland. There was three hours of freaking daylight. Um, so I was over in Finland doing work because I, I always had the gear spinning about something I wanted to do. And I had actually back then, uh, a buddy of mine and I designed our own Tendo unit. I, I hired an engineer to make a string pot box. And I got a buddy of mine that can write code. And we actually had our own Tendo unit, Tendo style unit. But this all fed into a database. So... I met not only measured the power in every rep, we measured the distance, the weight traveled in every rep. So we had a volume and a quality measurement on this particular device. Um, and that's why I was in Finland. I was showing it to them and we, we could never figure out a way to work together. And my daughter, I have a daughter who's now 20 years old and she plays lacrosse here at Ohio state. Now, uh, she was old enough back then that I was when I was working for Polar, I was on an airplane every week. I, I mean, I went, I was platinum in two different flight programs and got to work with just great programs all the way all across the country. But she was getting old enough that I didn't want to be that dad that was not around. Um, so, you know, there was some stuff that happened at Polar. There's some change in leadership. It created an opportunity for me to step out. I stepped away. I opened a little business here in the town I live in called Granville, Ohio, and I opened a, a little, it was a high tech personal training facility concept that we called Lemonade Fitness. Um, and um, so that's when I kind of stepped out of the corporate world and got more back to the practical applied side. And uh, in the context of working with my Lemonade concept, uh, I reconnected with the wrestling program at Ohio state that, uh, we had a new coach come in the current coach, Tom Ryan. Um, Tom did a really good job of reaching out to alumni. When he reached out to me, we connected because he's a, he's a training nut. And, um, and he, and when he learned about the application of technology to tracking, he fell in love with it. So that was kind of the introduction, which kind of pulled me, you know, out of the corporate world back into the applied world. And I've been, you know, while I've been doing this, I've also been teaching. I taught at a small college over in Western Ohio. One of my old students asked me to come over and help him out and just had a great, you know, five or six years teaching over there, but uh, left that a couple years ago to work full time with Ohio State. 
I'm going to be paraphrasing this, but one of my earlier guests, Dr. Gary Chimes, says you shouldn't think of your life in terms of a career, but rather a series of positions as you grow and change. And it sounds like you've hit that exactly. Yeah, I'm not sure I recommend that. I mean, it's 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 kind of a scrap to tell you the truth. But um, yeah, I people, what I do, I'm an exercise physiologist. That's what I do. That's what I think about. That's what goes. You know, when when everything's quiet and my head and my brain goes to where it wants to be, it goes to exercise physiology. I've had several jobs that help me pay my bills along the way, um, and those go back and forth. So you know, the skill set the skill set is the is the same. And whether you're trying to sell a product, when I went into the corporate, I sold a lot of products because I taught people the value of them and how to use them. When they figured out that they could utilize this to either improve their training or improve their profitability, they bought it. Um, it's not, you know, it's not about a used car salesman, you know, feature dumping. It's about understanding the individual's needs and being able to uniquely or helping them understand what we call the latent pains. You know, if there's a lot of strength coaches right now that don't know that their that their job status is changing dramatically right now, um, and that's a latent pain. They don't understand that that at some point in time here in the next five to ten years, this whole area is going to get turned on its head. Um, now, what we can do is help them understand that and help them understand that it's not about being the technical delivery of how to do a clean or a squat. But it's more about understanding individual athlete performance. What are the factors that go into it and how do you adjust to it? It's that switch from the technician to the scientist that is going to be the value proposition for these young professionals. And um, that's why it's understanding the science. And, and, the, and again, so whether it's sales or application or education or, you know, academics, it's about understanding the basic operations of, of the physiology of change. We've been talking to Don Moxley. Don, as he's described himself, is an exercise physiologist. He's currently the sports science coach for the Ohio State University Wrestling. We're going to come back in two weeks and talk to Don a little bit more about what exactly a sports scientist does with a wrestling team, and I think it will transfer over to any sports team or individual athletes. And also about his area of expertise, specialty is pillars of athletic monitoring. So it's not just the programming, but understanding how the body responds physiologically and psychologically to the effects of stresses of training and of life. Don, I want to thank you for joining Moving to Live for an interview, and I'm looking forward to talking to you more professionally in two weeks. It's my pleasure. I really, I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to the latest episode of Moving to Live. Make sure you check out the show notes for contact information for our latest guest, as well as links about all the things we talked about. Intro and exit music is Traveling Light by Jason Shaw. You can subscribe to Moving to Live on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play, and be notified about new episode releases. Have any questions, comments, or suggestions? Drop us an email, mov2liv at gmail.com. Connect with us on Twitter or Instagram, both underscore MOV number two LIV. Please tell your friends about Moving to Live. It's a go-to place for information for movement and exercise professionals and amateur aficionados who understand that movement is part of what makes your life complete. Until next week, keep on moving. <laughs>